This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy, and on today's show, we talk about the Colorado River Basin and the reservoirs that populate it. It's a good show recorded for you in Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. The drama is not how much water we're going to have in the future. We know it's going to be less. The drama is how are we going to deal who gets less water and when. On today's show, we're speaking with Jack Schmidt from the Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University and Eric Kuhn, General Manager for the Colorado River Water Conservation District for 37 years. We were fortunate enough to meet with Jack and Eric when they were here in Moab as part of the forum to discuss the future of Lake Powell at Star Hall in February 2020. Here, we discussed the role Lake Powell plays in the Colorado River Basin and how climate change, politics, and water use policies affect the reservoir's future. We begin our interview with Eric explaining how the water level forecast for Lake Powell is calculated. The Colorado River Basin Forecast Center, which is an arm of NOAA, they have a method of taking the data from the snow tells and the snow surveys and turning that into a runoff. They generate expected runoff throughout the basin and, you know, in adjacent basins as well. And they give that information to the Bureau of Reclamation. The Bureau of Reclamation then takes that information and routes it through a model that they call a 24-month study. And that has all of the major upstream reservoirs uh, like Flaming Gorge, Blue Mesa, Navajo. And they operate those as they would expect to operate based on that inflow. And then they get what was called a regulated inflow into Powell. So they know where Powell is, they know what the expected inflow is, and then the model just gives you the monthly elevations for the next two years. Now the first year is based on the forecast. The second year is just basically based on statistics. When we say a 24-month study, the, the forecast itself only covers April through July of the runoff. Everything else is primarily statistical. One other thing that comes into this that that might also give us a broader context for talking about the future of Lake Powell is to think of Lake Powell as a bathtub that you're trying to fill, but with a very large and wide-open drain. What Eric just described is the prediction of how much water is coming out of the faucet to fill the bathtub. That is part of the prediction of what will be the elevation of Lake Powell. But the other part of the prediction is to predict what will be the amount of water leaving going out the drain. In one sense, that is the result of a long set of negotiations among water users in the states In 2007, the rules of how much water goes out the drain were changed significantly. And then the renegotiation of those rules that precipitates all the fanfare and interest in the public and among stakeholders right now 
is that those rules of how much water goes out the drain uh, are going to be renegotiated. So in a sense, it's sort of science and the science of climate change and the science of snow surveying, which is the science of how much water comes out of the faucet into the bathtub. It's the political negotiations of how you distribute the fact that, whoops, there's less water coming out of the, into the faucet than we thought there was going to be, and we now need to change the rules of how much water leaves. That, that's the mix. It seems like there's a lot of uncertainty when you start adding in how things are going to change in the next 10 years, 20 years, if we're going into a very drought-dominant period. And so with all these uncertainties, what variables can be fixed, if any? Yeah, it's a great question. Traditionally, what the hydrologists that work for the USGS and the the Bureau of Reclamation and the states have done is they've used the rule that what's happened in the past will likely happen in the future. When they were sizing Glen Canyon Dam, they had a period of record of about 60, 70 years. And they simply assumed that the frequencies of droughts and wet years and the average flows and the mean, you know, and the median flows and the, the kind of the variability that they had experienced in those last 60 to 70 years would continue on in the future. What climate change does is it totally disrupts that basic assumption. The idea that the past is a good indicator of what the future will be not year to year, but in the, in the overall statistics, you know, that the average will stay the same. That is now wrong. Uh, we know that's wrong. So that's put us in a new era of trying to look at long-term futures by incorporating temperature changes and uh, using information from the climate science modelers and, and trying to do that. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that. And there's a, there's a lot of concern about how precise that is compared to looking at an old record of 60 years of inflow into Lake Powell. When we had stationarity in terms of we thought we knew how much water would be there in the long run on an average basis, we could put together long-term plans that were fairly precise and inflexible, perhaps. Now with uh, climate change making it much more variable, a lot of unpredictable things, the the whole system of managing uh, those reservoirs is going to have to be much more adaptive and flexible. You're absolutely right. Every element of predicting the conditions in the bathtub are up for grabs and uncertain. We might classify or categorize the kinds of uncertainty that we face. There's one kind of uncertainty in which we sort of know what the average conditions will be in the future. In that regard, there are most definitely predictions for the future that all predict that the average flow of the Colorado River, exactly as Eric just spoke, will be decreasing. And there's a probability around that prediction, and we will know better as time goes on how close we were to that prediction. But what we really have no ability to predict at all is even with an average condition, Are we going to get five years in a row of desperately below average runoff? Even though the average decreases, we still can get a drought 
even worse than the lower average. We can still get the oddball wet year, even though the average is lower. And it's certainly fair to say we have absolutely no idea what the year-to-year sequence of wet and dry years is going to be in the future. So, and you say, well, we need a new policy to deal with the fact that we have less water to divide amongst the users. But you also need a robust policy that says, what do you do if you get 10 really bad years in a row? What do you do if you get three gangbuster wet years in a row, and then you go right back into another 10 years of drought? And so that's a different kind of uncertainty for which we have no idea except to say we know it can happen. And then, of course, there's another kind of uncertainty, which is stuff we even can imagine. To put in a shameless plug, the uh, Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University has just released a white paper describing these different levels of uncertainty and then describing some of the tools that one might, one might bring to bear. And we're not unique in discussing this. Other groups have as well. But we should just remember there are different kinds of uncertainty. And the kinds of uncertainty that a manager of Glen Canyon Dam is dealing with to sort of decide how much water they might be releasing in October of 2020. There's uncertainty in that. But that's a management decision in the face of a short-term uncertainty. The negotiations that are going to be underway in the basin are trying to develop policies that will guide the management. And the test before us is, can we invent policies that are firm enough to let people know what they're doing but also recognize that we don't really have a clue whether we're going to get five years of drought or two years of wet or what might happen 20 years from now. And that's a real test of how we incorporate those ideas of uncertainty into our discussions about what the future should be. Let's talk more about that. Uncertainty and statistical means of predicting aside, what specific science is being done to try and harness down some of this uncertainty, if any science is being done, and how is it being implemented? There is very solid agreement that a warming climate yields less runoff in the Colorado River. At the side of this, which is climate and watershed science, the very best is coming to bear. When that science, some of it inconvenient, knocks up against public policy and long-held perceptions of who has rights to what water, perhaps we are less adaptable and we struggle more to incorporate that in. Yeah, that's my perspective. Yeah, and and I think just point out that the predictions that were made several decades ago about how increasing greenhouse gases will affect temperatures have, have been pretty good. I think they're going to get better. The problem is precipitation. Yeah. You know, precipitation is so much more difficult than temperature, especially in the Intermountain West where topography yeah. 
is already major. I mean, here in Moab, you average a few inches of rain a year, uh, maybe 10 or less, and then you go just a few miles uh, to the to the east on the top on the slopes of the LaSalle Mountains, and you're at 40 inches of rain. So topography and precipitation are the difficult things. But, you know, as Jack said, we've kind of nailed the direction that temperature is taking. It's scary. I think in the last five to 10 years, what we've discovered or we've really verified is that these increasing temperatures are going to overwhelm the precipitation signal. In other words, even if we get more precipitation, increasing temperatures are going to reduce the flows at the Colorado River where we are here in southern Utah. Will that science come into play or is are we just bound by the policies that were set up years ago? If nature can't provide those, what then? Yeah, great question. <laughs> um, you know, and that's what... Um, I recently put a book out about, uh, which is what happens when your science is inconvenient to the policy or political decisions that you want to make. A hundred years ago, um, we had some flexibility because the river was not very well used. So uh, if we promised water to somebody and that nature could not provide, then we had, we could always assume that future generations will fix the mess. Today on the Colorado River, every drop is used. Not, not a drop of water gets to, the, to, gets to the Gulf of Baja, California. So we don't have that luxury. The way I look at it is uh, we legally allocated water based on an assumption that this river system all the way down, including its lower basin tributaries, had about 20 million acre feet. Today we think that's more like 13 might be 14, it might be 10, 11, 12 in the future with climate change. So essentially, we're going to have to go on a diet. And the tough, tough decision, this overallocation of water is now in what we call the law of the river. It's in decrees, it's in compacts, it's in the treaty with Mexico. So how do we change that legal framework the lawyers and, and, and politicians and water managers uh, have always wanted certainty, but nature is not going to provide that certainty, even though your decrees and your, you know, the, the legal mechanism, the law of the river is written for certainty, but nature is not going to provide it. And that's going to be the challenge we have in the future. The drama is not how much water we're going to have in the future. We know it's going to be less. The drama is how are we going to deal who gets less water and when. In a river basin with seven states, some of them red, some of them blue, some of them purple, there is not one manager of water supply in the basin who doesn't take the prospect of declining runoff in response to a warming climate deadly seriously. There is no time in this basin for talk radio politics that have political agendas, but which don't contribute to the serious management of a water supply. And everyone takes it deadly seriously. Let's talk more about policy and go in a little bit to why that Lake Powell exists and how in the next few years policies may change. Yeah, the the basic reason for having storage um, above Lee Ferry is that under the 1922 Compact, which is an agreement, a contract among seven states in the United States that was ratified by the legislatures and Congress, and it's federal law and it's state law, 
what that compact did is it split the basin up into an upper basin and a lower basin. The compact, 1922 compact, gave no water to any individual states, but it divided water up among basins, those above Lee Ferry, the upper basin, those below Lee Ferry. And just, just to put a point that we all know, but just to, if somebody doesn't, when you imagine where that place is, that's essentially the place where boats launch to begin Grand Canyon River trips. It's just downstream from Glen Canyon Dam. So imagine when you push a boat off into the Colorado River and head downstream on your grand adventure through Grand Canyon National Park, you're essentially pushing your boat off in the upper Colorado River Basin. And by the time you crack your first beer, you're in the lower Colorado River Basin. <laughs> exactly. And then those negotiations, um, the upper basin uh, folks agreed to make certain water deliveries at this Lee Ferry. 75 million acre feet every 10 years, and that could be zero in one year and a lot more in another, but it was 75 million over 10 years, which they thought was about a third of the river, which today we think is about 60% of the river or more. So they committed to make certain water deliveries at Lee Ferry. Plus, they under the compact, they have an obligation to Mexico. Now, there was no treaty in 1922, but they knew that one was going to be negotiated. So they had a provision that said if there's a treaty, then the upper basin, lower basin share in that treaty obligation. So we have to deliver a roughly eight and a quarter million acre feet annually on average under this compact. Nature won't provide that year in and year out. Sometimes that flow is as low as four. Other times it's as high as 20 million acre feet. So nature is very variable. Even without climate change, it was variable. So what Lake Powell did was serve as the bank account so that in wet years we stored water, we put water in that bank, and in those drier years uh, when nature wouldn't provide that eight and a quarter million acre feet at Lee Ferry, we would draw on that bank. In 1950 or so, 1948 to 50, we determined we needed about 30 million acre feet of storage, almost four times our obligation in order to do that through a drought period like the 1930s. Uh, and that was the genesis of Lake Powell, as well as Flaming Gorge, Navajo, and some other big reservoirs that were built by the Bureau of Reclamation. Glen Canyon Dam is about 80% of it. I mean, so it's the biggest. And then the real question comes, well, what happens if we drain the bathtub and there's no more water? Then we have a compact problem. And we're going to have lots of discussions about whether with climate change, we can actually make our obligations under the compact. And what do we do if we can't? Just to broaden our perspective just a little bit beyond Lake Powell, let's keep in mind that Lake Powell and Lake Mead both have the same capacity. In fact, Lake Mead has slightly more capacity than Lake Powell. Those are the two largest reservoirs in the United States on a river that has a pretty dinky amount of water in it. I mean, the Colorado River is not a big river. It's a hell of a beautiful river, but it's not a big river, right? So you have the two biggest reservoirs in the United States, and between them is this place where nobody lives, and the river is just stuck in this deep, ditch reamed out through bedrock that just happens to be one of the most spectacular landscapes on earth 
But from a water management standpoint, nobody lives there and nobody's using it. <laughs> so essentially what you've got is one enormous reservoir called Lake Powell, a ditch through bedrock, and then in another enormous <laughs> a reservoir. So everybody above Lake Powell, they're doing things that reduce the inflow to Powell, right? Taking the water to Denver, taking the water to Salt Lake City, Albuquerque, Cheyenne. But then whatever gets through gets into Powell. Then it goes through these two reservoirs in the Grand Canyon. And then you get downstream and then everybody's fighting over it again. And so in some sense, the fate of Lake Powell is also tied up in the arguments and the discussion about whether it's better to keep both of these bathtubs, Powell and Mead, equally full or equally empty. Or preferentially keep one of them full and the other empty or the other, you know, or vice versa. And those are very important things. And it's complicated by this historical slash political perspective, which is Lake Powell is our reservoir because it's in the upper basin. Lake Mead is their reservoir. It's in the lower basin. And as Eric just explained well, that may be the case on paper, but as a practical matter, it's one giant reservoir separated by a ditch. So we might have to get over the political mindset on paper and say, what's the best way to manage this whole thing? Because it really is just one integrated system. You know, and the stakes are quite high in that okay. ditch, um, you know, and, and I think... Uh, that's, in my career, that's what we've seen. When I started in the early 1980s, I don't think anybody paid any attention to what was happening in that, in that ditch, in that canyon. And today, with recreation, with the native fish issues, uh, with the native culture issues, um, we pay a lot of attention to it. That has dramatically changed in the last few decades. What science is being done to address the uh, environmental impact of low water flows, climate change, and the dam itself that has caused changes in the river system? As Eric just said, we now think about the environmental effects of releases from Glen Canyon Dam downstream in the Grand Canyon in a way we didn't think about it decades ago. You know, there has been this many, many decades long imagination in the minds of, of at least some in the environmental community that the mistake of Glen Canyon Dam could be reversed. And it could be easily reversed and simply reversed by just letting the river run free. But there are these messy little details about the science that makes a simple idea a little bit harder than you think. To date, we're 60 years into the life of Lake Powell, and the total reservoir capacity has decreased due to filling by sediment on the order of 5 to 10% loss. That suggests that Lake Powell is potentially not going to fill with sediment in the next five years or something so that you have an easy answer like, oh, it's going to fill and therefore we need to do something right now. No, it's going to be a harder thing. It's not filling that fast because it's an enormous reservoir. But the reality is we do have to deal with sediment issues. 
when the reservoir is low, the way the river cuts through those sediment deposits up near height is a complicated affair that involves how much sediment is there, how wide is the valley, whether the river ends up going in a different place and goes over a waterfall like it does at Paiute Falls on the San Juan. And so there are issues. And we also learn that there's been longstanding concern about what happens to the geochemistry of those deposits when the sediments and the contaminants in those deposits are exposed to oxygen. But what we also learned is that when Lake Pell is low, then the temperature of the water released into the Grand Canyon is much warmer than what it has been over the last many decades. It turns out that the ecosystem of fish in Grand Canyon is completely different from what it was in the old days. But it's a unique, new, novel ecosystem that at least is a refuge for the largest population of endangered humpback chub on Earth. And if you change that temperature, you have the potential to shift that novel ecosystem to something else. If Lake Powell is kept perpetually low, then the temperatures in Grand Canyon are going to get much higher than they were. There is inevitable entrainment of a couple oddball non-native reservoir fish that sort of somehow live even though they go through the turbines. And if they end up downstream in a river that's warm, then they might establish a population that wasn't down there. Right now, the colder temperatures there prevent that from happening. So there's a risk that releases from the top of a warmer Lake Powell have the potential to facilitate invasions of new non-native fish into Grand Canyon. At the same time, many fish biologists view the conditions in the far western Grand Canyon as the most favorable right now for a native fish fauna of any place in the Colorado River Basin. Why? Because the river is warm down there, just like the native fish like, but... Lake Mead is low, and with Lake Mead low, there is a hell-raising rapid at Pierce Ferry at the takeout that is effectively a mini Paiute Falls, which is a barrier to undesirable non-native reservoir fish in Lake Mead invading upstream into the Grand Canyon. So if you pursued a strategy where you kept Lake Mead relatively full and you inundated Pierce Ferry Rapid, then you would eliminate that barrier and those non-native fish would swamp the system upstream. Now, none of us as scientists can say, is that unacceptably bad? What we can say, it would be very different. And that's where we go to this other important attribute of Colorado River policy, which is we've so engineered the system, we've so changed everything, that we really have to, as a society, be clear of defining what we want. Because if we want it, we probably can engineer it to achieve it. But, you know, in this example that I provided on fish... It's way more complicated than we might have thought. And it's not just so simple as saying, let the river run free and it'll all be wonderful downstream. Well, 
it'll be really different downstream and we can't predict right now whether it'll be better for native fish because it's warmer or it'll be better for non-native fish because they also love the warmth. I just wanted to ask both of you, how'd you come to be connected with the Colorado River Basin? What is it that drew you to start studying it when you actually did? Well, I had a job. <laughs> I worked for the Colorado River Water Conservation District in Colorado. Uh, we cover the Colorado Basin, most of the Colorado River Basin in Colorado. I got hooked on that, you know, and, and the way I looked at my job, it was really an adventure, uh, which I liked. Uh, and that led me to start to look in depth at how we arrived at the system we have today, both politically and the science uh, in the in the uh, the people issues. Um, so it became my passion as I was working on this river. I have been a lifelong recreational boater. I found myself back in graduate school chasing after a PhD and looking for a dissertation topic. I ended up doing my uh, PhD dissertation on how sandbars form in Grand Canyon and how they're affected by operations at Glen Canyon Dam, and that was in the mid-1980s, and I've worked throughout the basin ever since. So it was a complete fluke that started in which I got to work in research of something I was passionate about and loved from a recreational standpoint, and 30-plus years later, I'm still going. Nice. Well, Jack and Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to come by here and talk to us today. Thank you. Thanks, me. To listen to this interview with Jack Schmidt and Eric Kuhn again, or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spalding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies. The show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU.